As we come to our study of the Word of God this morning, we come to one of the most shocking events recorded in all of Scripture. To what event am I referring? Am I referring to the demons of Genesis 6 cohabiting with women to produce a strange offspring? No. Am I referring to Lot offering his daughters to the Sodomites in Genesis 19? No. Am I referring to the woman in Judges 19 who was killed and cut into 12 pieces and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel? No. Am I referring to the record of King David's adultery and murder? No. Am I referring to the betrayal of Jesus by one of his own friends? No. All those events are shocking. But in my opinion, the event we will consider this morning is even more so. I am referring to the baptism of Jesus. Have you ever stopped to consider how shocking it is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was baptized? Very few people, very few Christians ever stop to consider what a remarkable event that was. Why, why would he do that? Why would Jesus go to be baptized by a man who himself declared that the baptism he was practicing was a baptism of repentance? Why would Jesus participate in that? What was the purpose of Jesus getting baptized? Those are the questions that we'll seek to answer this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 1, if you are not already there. Mark chapter 1, as we uh, resume our trek through this brief gospel account, brief in comparison with the other three. Mark chapter 1, and please follow along as I read verses 9 through 11, this very short but shocking account recorded by Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These verses record for us the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. John's Gospel mentions the fact that Jesus was baptized, but it doesn't actually give the account or describe it as we see here and in Matthew and in Luke. But it is mentioned in John's Gospel. So the fact that all four Gospel accounts record in one form or another the baptism of Jesus... The fact that all four say something about it should let us know that this is something that the Holy Spirit and the Gospel writers want us to know. It is very important to know and to understand. In fact, there are very few incidents in the life and ministry of our Lord that are recorded or mentioned in all four Gospels. There are a number that occur in, say, for example, the three synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
Or maybe there's some that occur in Matthew and John or Mark and Luke or, you know, the, the various combinations. But it is not common for an event to be recorded or referred to or mentioned in all four gospel records. This event is one of those, however. All four gospel writers say something about this event. It lets us know that it is very important for us to be aware of, to think about, and to understand. As I mentioned a moment ago, it is shocking that Jesus was baptized by a man who himself declared that the baptism he was practicing was a baptism of repentance. The John mentioned here in these verses, of course, is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. We looked at his ministry last Lord's Day as we covered verses 1 through 8 of this opening chapter. John's message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John preached a strong message of repentance, and those who did repent were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. That's exactly what verse 5 says. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Furthermore, when John's baptism is described back in verse 4, Mark calls it specifically a baptism of repentance. So it is clear that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was connected to all about the issue of repentance. In other words, John's baptism was for those who had repented of their sins, and it was for the purpose of demonstrating their repentance in a public manner. That is why I said earlier that this event recorded in verses 9 through 11 is so shocking, so surprising. Unfortunately, many of us have known about this for a lot of years. In other words, if you've been a Christian for a long time, then you knew that Jesus was baptized. You know the story about the heavens parting, the, the dove coming down, the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove. And it's sort of ho-hum, yeah, we know that. Let's move on to the, the other exciting stuff about the life and ministry of Jesus. But stop and think about this. If John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, hopefully you can immediately see the dilemma. Did Jesus need to repent of anything? Absolutely not. Was Jesus a sinner? Absolutely not. Then why did he get baptized by John? Part of the answer to that question is this. Jesus came to identify with sinners and to save sinners. And that is key to understanding why he did what he did on this occasion. Let's consider this brief and yet profound account together. Notice verse 9, how Mark introduces it. He says, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The first thing that Mark tells us here in this verse is that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Picture in your mind a, a map of the land of Israel. Galilee is in the northern part of the land of Israel where Joseph and Mary settled to raise their family. Matthew 1 tells us that the family settled in Nazareth. That is where Mary was when she received the angelic announcement from Gabriel that she would give birth to the Christ child. So Matthew 1 tells us the family settled there in Nazareth, which was an obscure town with a less than desirable reputation. 
That is why Nathanael said in John chapter 1, when he was told about this Jesus of Nazareth, he responded by saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He wasn't necessarily being prejudiced when he said that. He was merely commenting on the character of the town and the reputation of the town. Consider this. Nazareth is nowhere mentioned in all of the Old Testament. Never even mentioned in the Old Testament. And from what we can gather, the people of the town had a reputation for being rough and rude. That's where Jesus grew up. That's where his family settled. That's where he was raised. It shouldn't surprise us that God chose that location for his son, the Messiah, to grow up in because God's ways are not man's ways. We would have expected Jesus to grow up in the royal city of Jerusalem, the city of kings. After all, he was the king. He is the king. But Jesus grew up in Nazareth. So when it was time for him to begin his public ministry, Mark tells us here in verse 9 that Jesus left Galilee up there in the northern part of Israel to go where John was ministering. Jesus was approximately 30 years old at this time. The last thing we know about him was when he was 12 years old and his family traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. It was on that occasion that Jesus was left behind in Jerusalem and was eventually found in the temple after a couple days listening to the teachers and asking them questions. From that point on, age 12, there are approximately 18 years of silence regarding the life of Jesus. 18 silent years. All we know about those 18 years is what we are told in Luke 2, 51 and 52, which says, Then Jesus went down with them, that is, left Jerusalem, went back down, even though you're going north, you're dropping in elevation, so that's why they say down, went down from Jerusalem to Nazareth. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's all we know about the 18 silent years between the experience of Jesus in the temple at age 12 when he was taken there probably for his bar mitzvah and the beginning of his public ministry at age 30. During that time, Dr. Luke tells us, Jesus was obedient to his parents and he was growing in wisdom and maturity. It sounds strange for us to hear that Jesus grew in wisdom and maturity and in favor with God and men. We tend to think of him because we know of his deity. We tend to think of him as not genuinely human. We tend to think of him as completely wise and mature and fully formed spiritually, even as a youngster or a young man, but he wasn't. He increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. Now that doesn't mean that he was sinful and needed to learn how to grow in victory over sin, that he needed to learn how to repent of sin and confess sin and and gain victory over sin. No, he was never sinful, but he was human. And because he was truly and genuinely human, he was able to increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And that is exactly what he did during those 18 silent years. He grew spiritually, 
He grew relationally. He grew physically. He grew in all of these dimensions. But as we come to verse 9 here of Mark chapter 1, those years are over. According to Luke 3.23, Jesus is now about 30 years old. That was the age for entering into the, prophet, uh, into the office of prophet, priest, or king. Jesus was all three. He was and is the prophet who was predicted in Deuteronomy 18. He was and is our great high priest. He was and is the king of Israel and the king of the world. At age 30, it was time to step into those three roles and into his public ministry. God the Father chose the baptism of Jesus to be his inauguration into his public ministry. So Jesus left Galilee, verse 9 tells us, and he went to John, who was out in the Judean wilderness. That's the southern part of the land of Israel, but he was over in the Judean wilderness, over toward the east. And Jesus went there with a purpose. The end of this ninth verse says, Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. That would be, of course, the Jordan River. This was the way, this was the way Jesus inaugurated his public ministry. It's the way he launched into it. Matthew tells us that John objected at first by saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? John's perspective was correct. He knew that Jesus was infinitely superior to him in every way. That is why back in verse 7, John had said, Jesus is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Even if John didn't understand the deity of Jesus, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And since Jesus was the Messiah, John rightly saw Jesus as infinitely superior to and above himself. Now the reason why I said even if John didn't understand the deity of Jesus is because it isn't clear. It isn't clear that John or the twelve disciples or any of the people of the first century completely understood the fact that Jesus was God in human flesh. Eventually they began to get it. Eventually they began to grasp it because Jesus reiterated it over and over again. But early on, they didn't really see that or understand it. Yet even if John did not understand the deity of Jesus, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And since he was the Messiah, John saw Jesus as infinitely superior to and above himself. That's why John objected to baptizing Jesus. And think about it. Put yourself in John's situation. Would you be willing to baptize Jesus? I wouldn't want to do that. It's very similar to how Peter responded when on the last night, there in the upper room, Jesus knelt down to wash Peter's feet. Peter tried to prevent Jesus from doing that. Would you want, honestly now, would you want Jesus to stoop down before you to wash your feet? None of us would feel comfortable with that. So we can all relate to John the baptizer when he objected to the idea of baptizing Jesus. He said, Lord, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? John knew he was a sinner. 
He knew that his life and character were not up to the same standard as the life and character of Jesus. So he felt the need to repent before Jesus and express his repentance by allowing Jesus to baptize him. Yet Jesus was coming to him to be baptized by him. So even though John felt uncomfortable, even though John felt like, well, I need to repent and have you baptize me, that wasn't God's plan in this situation. Jesus convinced John of the appropriateness of this baptism. Jesus informed John that by baptizing him, it would fulfill all righteousness. That's, that's the exact expression Jesus used. It would fulfill all righteousness. What did Jesus mean by that statement? How did his baptism fulfill all righteousness? To answer that, ask yourself this question. How did Jesus fulfill the righteousness of God? How did he? He fulfilled the righteousness of God by living a perfect, sinless life, and then by dying on the cross to pay for the sins of sinners. That's why he came to this earth. That's why he became a man. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. For him to be able to save sinners, he had to become truly, fully human, genuinely human. Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then, as, children have part, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That verse is saying that for Jesus to be able to save us, he had to become like us. He had to become one of us. He had to become a man. He had to become truly and fully, genuinely human. So Jesus was baptized to identify with humanity. He was baptized to show that he was truly and fully, genuinely human. He identified himself with sinners right at the beginning of his ministry. Right at the beginning. This is similar to the way he began his life. You remember he began his life when he was born of the, the Virgin Mary. He, he began his life by being wrapped in swaddling cloths, which were the same type of cloths used to wrap someone in for burial. So he began his life by identifying with sinners or foreshadowing that he came to die for sinners. And then he begins his ministry, identifying with sinners by being baptized, which was something that all the sinners who heard John did when they repented. He identified himself with sinners. He wasn't sinful, but he was human. And he was baptized to symbolize the fact that one day he would die for the sins of sinners and he would be resurrected to newness of life. It's interesting to note that in Luke 12, 50, Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism which he must undergo. That's the word picture he used. In Mark 10, 38, he referred to his death as a baptism he would experience. So Jesus was baptized to symbolize the fact that one day he would die and then be resurrected to newness of life. And that is exactly what baptism pictures. I mean, think about the picture. When a person is placed back into the water, it is a picture of death. 
When the person is raised up out of the water, it is a picture of resurrection. So when Jesus was baptized, it symbolized the fact that one day he would die and he would be resurrected to newness of life. Just as a side note here, and a very important one, those who teach that baptism washes away your sins and saves you really have to dance a jig to try to get around the implications of their theology at this point. If baptism washes away your sins and saves you, then Jesus had his sins washed away and was saved when he was baptized. Of course, that is utter heresy, just as it is heresy to say that baptism is what saves us today. No, baptism is a picture When John, the baptizer, placed Jesus backwards into the water, it pictured his eventual death. When John brought Jesus up out of the water, it pictured his eventual resurrection. And beloved, when we are baptized as believers, the picture is very similar for us. Once we have repented and given our lives to Christ, we are changed. We become new. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if, any person is in, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And baptism pictures that reality in a beautiful way, a powerful way, a profound way. When you are placed backwards into the water, it pictures the fact that you have died to your old way of life. You have died to yourself. You have died to your sins positionally. And then when you are brought up out of the water, it pictures the fact that you have been raised to newness of life, that you are a new creation in Christ, a new person. So there are a lot of parallels between our baptism as believers and the baptism of Jesus. Now, they're not identical, but not by any means, but there are similarities. Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners and to symbolize the fact that one day he would die and then be resurrected to newness of life. And if there were any doubt about the appropriateness of Jesus getting baptized, the next verse, verse 10, removes all doubt. Because verse 10 tells us that when this happened, and immediately coming up out of the water or from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. The Greek word that Mark uses here to describe what happened in the heavens means to be ripped apart. It's actually a quite, it's quite a violent Greek word. The heavens were torn apart. The heavens were ripped apart. And the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus. God chose this occasion right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, to publicly affirm that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. You will remember that the word Messiah, our English word, comes from the Greek word Christos, the Hebrew word Mashiach, and it means anointed or anointed one. So when the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, came upon Jesus, it pictured the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the anointed one. This was the Holy Spirit anointing Jesus for his messianic ministry. 
throughout the ministry of Jesus, we are told that he did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why when the scribes and Pharisees accused him of doing what he did by the power of Satan, Jesus said that is the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He is basically saying, you know that I did what I did in the power of the Holy Spirit, but you are willing to lie to the people so they won't believe in me and to tell them I'm doing what I'm doing by the power of Satan. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Although he was God, he functioned like a man. So he ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this right here, beloved, this is the Holy Spirit's anointing Jesus for his ministry and for that purpose. But there was also another purpose in this event. Now here's where you need to put your thinking cap on a little bit because this gets a little bit uh, uh, deeper than, than we often go. Keep in mind that the primary theological emphasis of Hebrew Scripture, the primary theological emphasis of the Old Testament is that there is only one true God. Hebrew Scripture reiterates that time and time again. That is a thread that runs all the way through the Old Testament. There is only one true God. God repeated that over and over again because His people Israel lived in the midst of polytheistic peoples. That is, the people of Israel lived in the midst of surrounding nations that believed in a multiplicity of gods. There was a rain god, a fertility god, a fire god, etc., etc. So it was, it was extremely important for God to emphasize that in reality, there is only one God, one true God, and that one true God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Monotheism was the cornerstone truth for the Jewish people. All conservative theologians agree on that. Monotheism was the cornerstone truth for the Jewish people. It is the primary theological emphasis of the Old Testament. And that is why God said very little in the Old Testament about the triunity of his being. It would have surely led the people to believe that there are three gods. But there aren't three gods. There is only one God, and this one God is composed of three distinct persons. Now, that reality is hinted at in Hebrew Scripture in several places. Even when we read in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. You have plural pronouns there. Even the very word God, Elohim, is plural in Hebrew. So this, this truth, this reality is hinted at in Hebrew Scripture, but it is never really spelled out in clear, unmistakable terms. God's perfect wisdom knew what the right timing would be. The delineating of the doctrine of the Trinity or the triunity of God was something that was reserved for the New Testament era. And since the coming and ministry of Jesus is the beginning of the New Covenant or the New Testament era, God chose this occasion to begin revealing that truth in more explicit terms. That leads to the next verse. Notice verse 11. Then a voice came from heaven you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This voice from heaven was obviously the voice of God the Father. He spoke from heaven, and in doing so, he did two things. First of all, he affirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
When God the Father said, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, that was clearly an attestation or affirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. Those Jewish people in this society who knew the Messianic passages of Hebrew Scripture would have known Psalm 2-7, which says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That verse, Psalm 2-7, was for the Jewish people like some of the common verses that most Christians know in society today. You know, like John 3-16 or, or Romans 3-23. I mean, Psalm 2-7 was one that almost all Jewish people knew. And God's statement from heaven connected Jesus with Psalm 2-7. Here's another verse. Isaiah 42-1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That verse would have exploded in the minds of the people who knew it and who were standing around and heard these words from the Father on this occasion. They heard God say, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 42.1 prophesied that God would delight in His chosen one, and that God would put His Spirit upon His chosen one to make sure that people made the connection. God put the Holy Spirit upon Jesus in the form of a dove when He was baptized, and then God spoke from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How? How could anyone in that society who was looking for the Messiah and knew Psalm 4, or Isaiah 42.1, how could anyone who was looking for the Messiah and knew that verse have missed the connection? They couldn't miss it. There's no way they could have missed it, which is exactly what God wanted. God the Father was affirming that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first thing that God was seeking to accomplish when he spoke these words. But there was a second. There was a second thing God was doing in this situation. And that is, he was beginning to expand on the truth of his triunity. This is one of the few occasions in Scripture where you have all three members of the triune Godhead seen in one setting at the same time. The Son is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven. All three persons of the Trinity are clearly manifest on this occasion. By the way, this is further evidence against the unbiblical doctrine known as modalism. Modalism teaches that God is one person. Not that there is one God, that God is one person. This one person, according to modalism, plays three different roles. He played God the Father in the Old Testament time. And then he came to the earth and he played God the Son in the Gospels. And then he ascended into heaven and changed clothes, as it were, and came back to earth as God the Holy Spirit. One person playing three roles, that's modalism and it is not biblically accurate. Now, it is true that God is one in essence. God is one in nature. God is one in substance. But it is equally true that he is three distinct persons. Not one person playing three roles. Three distinct persons. There is but one God whose nature is undivided and indivisible. There is but one God who exists in three persons 
who are equal in substance but distinct in subsistence. What do we mean by that phrase, equal in substance but distinct in subsistence? That means that the members of the Godhead are equal in their essence, they are equal in their nature, they hold the same attributes in common, but, listen, they are not the same person. There are three eternal persons in one divine nature known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I told you we're going deeper than we usually do, so keep your your thinking caps on. There is no, hear this, there is no subordination or inferiority of essential being within the Godhead. No subordination or inferiority of essential being. Full, undiminished deity belongs equally to each member. For example, the Spirit is not less powerful than the Father or the Son. The Spirit is not more omnipresent than the Son. The Son is not more loving than the Father. They are the same in essence. They are the same in substance. So I'll say it again. There is no subordination or inferiority of essential being within the Godhead. However, there is a logical, or maybe a better term would be, there is a relational subordination. The Son submitted to the Father in the Incarnation. You know that. You've read the Gospels. Jesus repeatedly said, I just came to do my Father's will. I only do what my Father tells me to do. There, the, the Son submitted to the Father in the Incarnation. And the Spirit submitted to the Father and the Son when the Spirit descended. But that has nothing to do with the divine essence they each possess. There is no subordination or inferiority of essential being within the Godhead, but there is a relational subordination. That's what the Bible teaches about the triune God. Now you say, oh, okay, now I got it. No, you don't got it, and I don't got it. The the doctrine of the triunity of God is something we cannot completely grasp. As one old Quaker put it, if you ignore the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your soul. If you try to understand it completely, you will lose your mind. That is well said. But because this is true of God, the New Testament delineates this truth in a variety of ways. This is one of the classic passages. This one right here. All three persons of the Trinity are clearly manifest on this occasion. The Son is baptized. God the Son is baptized. God the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And God the Father speaks from heaven. And when God the Father spoke from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. He was saying something that would take the believers of the first century quite a while to grasp. He was not only saying that Jesus was the Messiah. He certainly was saying that. But he was also saying that Jesus was divine. Jesus was not only genuine humanity, he was also genuine deity. For God the Father to refer to Jesus as his Son is to say that Jesus is also divine or genuine deity. Let me say it another way. The phrase, the Son of God, not a Son of God, you and I, if we know Christ, you as a, a man are a son of God, as a, as a, uh, a woman, a, a daughter of God. We are children of God. But the title, the son of God, is a title of deity. 
Now, this was not something that was a part of the understanding of the Jewish people concerning their Messiah. I think it would be safe to say that no Jewish person, regardless of how godly, regardless of how scholarly, regardless of how knowledgeable, no Jewish person believed their Messiah would be divine. The reason I say that is because, as I mentioned earlier, the foundational and core truth of Judaism is the fact that there is only one true God. One. That had been drilled into them for centuries. Therefore, they could not perceive or conceive of a man being divine. That just didn't compute with them. They knew their Messiah would be holy and righteous and just and powerful and probably even believed he would be miraculous. But they didn't think for a moment he would be divine. But here, here in verse 11, God the Father begins the education process. This man, Jesus, this was God the Father's way of saying, this man, Jesus, was not merely a man. Oh, he's a man. That's why he got baptized. To identify with humanity, to identify with sinners, but he's not merely a man. He is the Messiah, and furthermore, he is the Son of God. And that education process begins right here in verse 11. God the Father will continue it. God the Holy Spirit will continue it. God the Son will continue this education process throughout the Gospels, on into Acts, throughout the epistles of the New Testament. And this is where it began. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, came to this earth to die for the sins of sinners. And that's what was pictured in this shocking event of his baptism. Jesus came to die. That was declared when, we, when he was wrapped in swaddling cloths as a baby to begin his life. That was declared here on this occasion when, we, when he was baptized to begin his public ministry. Jesus came to die. So I ask you a simple question this morning, simple but yet with eternal implications. Have you received the benefits of Jesus' death? Have you personally received Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior, as your substitute for the penalty that you deserve for being a sinner? If you have not, I urge you to do so now as we bow together in closing prayer. Please bow your head with me. As you bow your head in the final few minutes that remain of our time together, just take a, take a moment or two to meditate on what you have seen in God's Word, what you have heard from God's Word this morning. Think about this remarkable event when Jesus, the Messiah, the flawless Son of God, sinless man, was baptized by John. Baptized to identify with humanity. Baptized even to identify with sinners. Baptized to picture the fact that he had come to die and be resurrected to newness of life. Baptized to inaugurate or kick off his public ministry. Baptized to give the Father the opportunity to begin revealing in greater detail the doctrine of the triunity of God. All of that, all of that was a part of this event. No wonder it, 
It's, it, it was and is such an amazing event. No wonder all four gospel writers say something about it. It is that meaningful. It's that profound. And at the core, at the root, it was a picture that Jesus came to die for the sins of sinners. That's you. That's me. Sinners who deserve eternal death. But Jesus paid for our sin. He became our substitute. And we are required to repent of our sin and to receive his payment, to embrace him. And so I ask you again this morning, have you done so? Have you humbled yourself before God in simple childlike faith with a heart of repentance to receive Jesus Christ's payment for your sin? The fact that Jesus died on the cross does you no good just by knowing about it. You can have a friend or family member buy you a gift at a store, pay for it, have it on hold there waiting, and they tell you to pick it up. If you don't ever pick it up, you don't ever make the effort to receive it, it does you no good. The same is true with the death of Christ. Just knowing about it really doesn't do you any good. Have you embraced it? Have you received it? Have you turned to Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior? I urge you to, to take seriously the contemplation of that issue in your life. Father, as we close our time together this morning, thank you for the opportunity to think about, to probe this amazing event, one that we so easily pass over when we read Scripture, especially if we're familiar with it. But when we stop to really consider it, when we stop to think about its implications and its meaning, we see that there's far more to it than we would have caught at first glance. So thank you for mentioning, recording this in all four gospel accounts to make sure that we don't miss it, to make sure that we contemplate it, to make sure that we seek to understand it. And as we've seen this morning, at the core of this event, is the foreshadowing that your Son, the Lord Jesus, came to die for the sins of sinners and to be resurrected so we could have newness of life. Oh, Father, how I pray for anyone hearing these words now who does not have new life, who is not a new creation in Christ. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction, understanding, enlightenment. May your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman, young person, whoever it is, to humble himself or herself before you, to let go of whatever is holding back, and in simple childlike faith, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and the benefits of his death for our sins. We pray these things in his matchless name. Amen.